Good morning, everybody. You know, can you think of any place after the things that we've experienced this week, can you think of any place you'd rather be than here with your brothers and sisters in Christ? I don't know about you, but I can't. I was anxious and ready to be here this morning. There's nothing like being with our brothers and sisters in Christ when we are suffering. And you know, we are suffering. This is, this is genuine suffering that we are experiencing. You know, the Bible calls uh, death the last enemy. So it is an enemy. But the Bible also says we don't mourn as those who have no hope. So we do mourn. We do grieve. It's appropriate and uh, even necessary. But we grieve as those who have hope because we hope in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, in the midst of preparing this sermon this past week, you know, our brother in Christ, Mike Farrell, went to be with the Lord. It was actually Wednesday. I considered what would be the best way to honor Mike's memory, to preach what I'd already begun to plan, or maybe to do something else. But as I thought about Mike, and I thought about the things that were really important to Mike, and it was obvious that they were important to him by the way he lived his life and the priorities that he set, I thought that the best way to honor him would be to preach this message that I already had in mind because Mike's heart was to see the lost saved. Mike's heart was to see those in darkness brought into the kingdom of light. You know, it drove nearly everything that he did. So I could hear Mike appreciating a lot of the things that we're going to hear this morning, we're going to explore together. I trust that most importantly, what we're going to look at this morning will truly glorify God but also honor the things in this life that were things that were most important to Mike. Now think about this for a minute. Have you ever thought about the people you know who seem to be unsavable or maybe the least likely to be saved? I want you in, for just a moment here, let's do a little exercise together. And I want you to picture I want you to picture some of those people you know in your mind. It might be a neighbor it might be a coworker or a schoolmate. It might be a family member. But now, with a picture of that person in your mind, I want you to take a moment to consider why they seem to be unsavable. Some of those people that Mike worked with in the Christian Motorcycle Association, one of his passions in life, probably would look to many of us as unsavable or at least very unlikely converts. My guess is that when you do this exercise like I did this exercise, you're probably like me. You probably think that this person you're thinking of, this person that comes to mind when you ask that question, seems unlikely to trust in Jesus because of what you know they believe or don't believe, or you know what they do, or both. Maybe it's their hostility toward God and Christians. Maybe it's a blatantly immoral lifestyle. Maybe it's their atheism. Maybe it's their piercings or tattoos or their alcohol or their drug abuse. Maybe it's because they're homosexual and proud of it. Or they're an adulterer and it doesn't bother them. We have some scripture that without a proper context of this scripture seems to justify this kind of thinking. How about this one in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10? It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's where we get to this morning's sermon title. You knew we'd get to that eventually, right? Scoundrels in heaven. You know, we look at these people we're thinking of, and we think there's no way that that person could become a Christian. We're, maybe we're a little more trusting in the Lord, but we think, boy, it's sure unlikely that this person would ever come to Christ. Or you know what? Sometimes we think even the reverse of that. We see someone who lives a very good life. They're very moral. Maybe they share your politics or your interests. Maybe they even go to church sometime. They're decent. They're kind. They're compassionate people. But you happen to know that they've never been born again. And you think, I could really see this person becoming a Christian. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. We might never voice it, but most of us have probably thought of something like this before. That is, either we have a hard time imagining this person or that person getting saved, or we have an easy time imagining this person getting saved. But when we do think either of these things, that somebody can be saved because either a good moral person or somebody that can't possibly be saved because look at how they live their lives, we're undermining the grace and mercy of God that's at the heart of the way that we are saved. And we're dismissing the true gospel, the good news of how people gain eternal life. For starters, let's read the verse immediately following the passage we read just a moment ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. We read 9 and 10 a moment ago, but 6.11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul says, after giving us this list of sinners, he says, such were some of us. Some of us were sexually immoral. Some of us were adulterers. Some of us were idolaters. Some of us practiced homosexuality. Some of us were thieves or greedy or drunkards. We were scoundrels. We were scoundrels, just bad people. Actually, all of us were bad people. We were scoundrels. Even if this list we just read doesn't include the kinds of respectable sins that the rest of us may be guilty of here. Romans 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous. There is no one righteous, not even one. But we must remember what Scripture tells us, which is why there will be scoundrels in heaven. Of course, they'll all be former scoundrels because their sins will have been covered by the blood of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, where we ju- this we just read, it says we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified. We're no longer scoundrels when we're in Christ. But the original language in this verse indicates clearly that this washing, this sanctifying, this justifying is something done to us or for us by someone else. It's never something we can do for ourselves. Here's a key verse in fleshing out this theme this morning. These are the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 44. He said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. No one. Who does that include? Everyone. Because it says no one. Not the quote-unquote good person that many of us may have at one time thought we were. Not the quote-unquote bad person who's a thief or a drunkard or greedy or sexually immoral. 
The bad people and the good people all come to Jesus the same way. The Father draws them. The Lord takes the first step. It's His initiative. The word can in this verse, that is, no one can come to me, Jesus said of Himself, is from a Greek word that means power or to be able. So another way to say this is that no one has the power. No one is able. No one is capable of coming to Jesus without God taking the initiative by drawing us, by pulling us toward Jesus, by inclining us to seek Him, by softening our hearts toward His grace. The good, loving, compassionate person, apart from Christ, can't find his way to God without God first drawing him. Any more than the scoundrel can. So yes, there will be scoundrels in heaven, folks. Scoundrels like the Apostle Paul, who persecuted the church. And then God in His loving kindness drew him to Jesus. Scoundrels like John Newton, who was a womanizing, carousing slave ship captain who actually raped some of the slave women that he transported into the life of slavery and then later was drawn to Jesus and became a minister of the Gospel. And he wrote a hymn that we all know. We still sing it 400 years later. Amazing Grace. When you know about Newton's story, you see how truly personal these verses were. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He was writing about himself, folks. He was writing about all of us. If it sounded more poetic, he might have said, it saved a scoundrel like me. Or how about a more contemporary scoundrel, like this woman, Rosaria Butterfield. Anybody have ever heard of her? Let me introduce her to you today. She's a, a feminist, lesbian university professor who says that she despised Christians before she became one herself. She wrote of this time in her life, She wrote, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. This lady was a scoundrel, folks, but God drew her too. You know what she is now? She's a pastor's wife, and she's an author. Let's listen to a few minutes of her story. have struggled with these testimonies that make it seem that, that the point of the Christian life is to be to be um, uh, to be just confident unto yourself that the point of the Christian life is to have all of your problems solved so that your strength is in you that is uh, not only is that annoying that's heretical right I, I, you know I mean first of all if that's if that's if that's what you get, you know, there are any, you know, countless of self-help programs who promise to do it without the blood, you know, that's distasteful. But, you know, beyond that, we know that our hope is in the risen Christ and that it is not in ourselves that we stand, right, but in a daily dependence 
upon Christ. We are shattered for our sins, not necessarily because they are terribly odious to us, at least not at first. The Christian life is a discipline. It's an art. It's a science. It is not a quick fix. It is something that you establish over the life of your time with, with, with the Lord on earth. And so, so I, I think that if a testimony doesn't give you that sense of brokenness and shatteredness, um, and a sense that it is not me who, um, who is self-sufficient. It is the Lord himself who stands in my place. Then I think the, the world knows, well, there's just nothing in that. Hmm. But, uh, you know, again, I, I want to say that the, the, the common grace is a wonderful thing. And common grace is bestowed upon, uh, you know, everyone. And at least in my experience, my gay and lesbian community was a place filled with common grace. I was, I was in serially monogamous lesbian relationships for a decade in the 1990s during, in some ways, the heyday of AIDS. And I learned the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife and get lots of kudos for as a pastor's wife in my gay and lesbian community. Mm. Because when you are regularly burying people from an illness that you do not understand, you learn a central Christian gift, and that's called standing with the disempowered. Mm. You learn how to accompany people in suffering, and those are good and Christ-like um, things uh, to, to, to learn and qualities to have. Uh, but when I started reading the Bible, I was reading it for a research project. You know, I was writing a book on the religious right from a lesbian feminist perspective. And, you know, my colleague was an anthropologist. He could go off to Promise Keepers, you know, meetings and interview people. But I'm an English professor by training. My job is to read this book that got all these people in trouble and figure out why. And, um, no, I'm serious. You think I'm kidding. I'm cleaned up right now. This <laughs> is... Um, you know, in addition to that, I'm an English professor by training. I'm a whole book specialist, so my job is to size up a book in terms of its integrity. Um, I would never use the Norton Anthology. I would, you know, you'd have to read all of it. My job is to make sure that the parts make up the whole. So when I started reading the Bible, it was absolutely undoing to me to discover that that is what we have here. It was absolutely... Um, hermeneutically shocking to me to discover that the Bible was a unified biblical revelation. I was undone at the reality that God deals differently with with people when people deal differently with God. I was blown away by the democratization of original sin and the free gift of the gospel. And most of all, my total undoing was to realize that I had thought I was on the side of righteousness and goodness and kindness and compassion. And it was my total undoing to realize that not only was it Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time, but it was my Jesus, my prophet, my priest, my savior, my king, and my friend. And so that was my encounter with the Lord. Uh, I don't know how else to say it, except for that the pastor that the Lord used in, in my conversion was my neighbor and my friend. We opened the word together because I was trying to critique it, and he was more than happy to help me keep reading it. Um, I was using him. 
and perhaps he was using me. <laughs> but I never felt like a project. And part of why I never felt like a project was that Ken Smith always realized that the big sin in my life was unbelief. Everything else would get worked out in the wash. Amen. That's a powerful testimony, isn't it, folks? Now, if you're interested in seeing the whole interview, it's about 40 minutes. It's available online. I can give you a link if you want to email me. It's a really a very encouraging story. She's also written a book called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Just the kind of person that many of us thought of in our little exercise when we began the message this morning. So Rosaria Butterfield was a scoundrel. But then, by God's grace, she was washed. She was sanctified. She was justified. And here's an important point. For all of us, coming to him means a turnaround. When we come to him, there's a radical change, a total departure from our old life. It may not be immediate. Like she said, it gets worked out in the wash. But it means a contrast from the way we were before to the what we are becoming. From being spiritually blind to being able to see the eternal realities of heaven. From being in darkness to entering into the light. From being condemned for our sin to being forgiven of all of our sin. From being spiritually and eternally dead to spiritually alive. From being enslaved to sin to being set free voluntarily and slaved to righteousness. From being without hope and without God in this world to being assured in our hope of eternal life and a never-ending relationship with Christ. From being under God's wrath as enemies of God to becoming one with God at peace, completely forgiven and reconciled. From an old self which was totally and completely self-centered to a new self which is centered on Jesus. From ungodly sinners lacking any power at all to correct our situation to justified and cleansed saints filled with the power of the Spirit of God. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us, folks. Apart from Christ, we are weak. We are powerless. We are unable to come to Christ. That's why all of us needed God to draw us to bring us from being scoundrels to being saints. Saints is the word that's used quite often in Scripture to describe just ordinary, everyday believers in Christ. Not in the sense that any of us are perfect. That's kind of a secular understanding of what it means to be a saint. But because even when we're in Christ, we're in process for a lifetime. But it's in the sense that God has claimed us. He has redeemed us. And He sees us as clean and set apart to Him through the lens of the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which has washed us from our sins. One of the things that's always on my heart, this is daily on my heart, folks, and I'm guessing that there's so many here have this on their hearts as well, and I know this because I've spoken with so many of you who carry this on your heart. That is, you have a loved one, or you have a family member, or you have a close friend, or a neighbor or a co-worker, and you desire strongly to see them in the kingdom of God. You want to see them saved. And you want it so badly you can almost taste it. So you look for opportunities. And you try to love this person. 
You try to have a real, genuine relationship with them. Not as a project, as Rosaria Butterfield said, but as a genuine friend or a parent or brother or sister or uncle or whatever your relationship with this person happens to be. Often when you're preparing to be with this person, you go with very high hopes and great expectations. You think, maybe this will be the time that I'll finally see a breakthrough. Maybe this will be the time that I'll really have a good chance for a quality talk with this person. Maybe this will be the visit that I'll finally see the fruit, the results of the years of discussion that I've already had with this person. Maybe this will be the time that I'll see them come to Christ, that I'll see them get saved, come into the kingdom of God. Now, anybody here, anybody here relate to those kinds of thoughts, to those kinds of scenarios? I'm guessing most of us can. How many times have you been there? And how many times have you come home from that encounter, whether it was a visit out of town or a meal with them or whatever, disappointed, grieving perhaps at the lost state of some friend or family member or loved one. And maybe along with that, you feel that somehow you too are a failure because you just weren't a better witness. And you take that to heart. I'm guessing that all of us who care about the spiritual state of our friends and loved ones can relate to this. But this morning, I want us to have hope, folks. I want us to have hope because our loved ones are being pursued by God. And He is faithful. Whether we can see Him at work or not, He is at work. And I also want us to avoid guilt, because that can come in these kind of situations as well. And that only brings condemnation. I want us to have hope because God loves these people more than we do. That's very difficult for us to understand and even imagine sometimes because our love for them is so deep and intense. But it's true. His love is so much, so much greater than our love for them. And what's more, it's up to Him, folks. It's not up to us. Yes, of course, we must be willing instruments in the hand of God. The Word says we are His witnesses. The Word says we are to do the work of an evangelist. But the Word never tells us to save anyone. And some of you are thinking, well, you know, the Word says go make disciples. It says make disciples. It doesn't say to save anyone, folks. It just doesn't. And we take that on ourselves to the point where we get ourselves depressed and discouraged. Salvation is entirely a work of God. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. They're not capable They're not able. They can't even work up the wanna apart from the grace of God. This truth should do two things in all of us. First, it should free us of guilt. Sometimes we might say, well, gee, I've blown my witness. Maybe that's because we've exhibited our sin nature in a conversation or action. You know, these things can get heated sometimes. Anybody, all of us have been in those heated conversations. Well, gee, I blew it. Because now they'll never want to receive the grace of God. Why would they? when I'm such a poor example. Imagine that, folks. We're not perfect. Or maybe we've studied our apologetics very well. Maybe we're steeped in it. But in the moment when a discussion turned in a hopeful way and we think, now's my chance, we discover we really weren't as ready as we thought we were. We didn't have the right words. We didn't have the right scripture. Or the conversation quickly went downhill because we overreacted. Or maybe the other person overreacted. We did just fine. But again, we feel like we've blown it. We blew our chance. How can we ever measure up? You know, we can't all be Josh McDowell 
or Greg Kukul or Ravi Zacharias always ready with answers to hard questions. But remember what Jesus said. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. It's His work. It's His work. Yes, He can and will and wants to use us. And yes, apologetics is good. Winsomeness is good. Being ready with an answer is good. Loving people and earning a right to be heard. All these are good things, folks. But salvation is God's work. The bottom line is this. And it's summarized by three different uh, quotations I want to read to you. They're all about the verse in John 6 that we just read. The first one is, No human being in the world on his own has the moral and spiritual ability to come to Christ unless God the Father draws him. That is, gives him the desire and inclination to come and the ability to place trust in Christ. And then next, God, not people, plays the most active role in our salvation. When someone chooses to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, he or she does so only in response to the urging of God's Holy Spirit. God does the urging. And then finally, people are so ensnared in the quicksand of sin and unbelief that unless God draws them, they are hopeless. So what's missing from this equation, folks? First of all, let's relax a little bit. You know, sometimes we can be really intense. And, you know, being compelled by the Holy Spirit is a good thing. But we can be so intense that we forget that it's not about us. It's about His glory. Do we really think that person that God is drawing to Jesus will be kept out of heaven just because we, in our human frailty, failed to say the right words at the right time? Does He love them so little that it all depends on us? If it does, boy, that's a scary thought. Man, I hate to think that anything depends entirely on me. Don't we think God is able to do what He says in His Word that only He can do anyway? Certainly, let's be obedient to do what God has asked of us as His witness. But let's be freed from this guilt or angst that comes when we feel like we've blown our chance. Surely God is big enough. Surely God is powerful enough. He's able enough to save those that He is in the process of drawing to Himself. Now, the second thing that this means is that rather than always having the right words, always having the right demeanor, or the right circumstances, as important as those things are, there's something else we can and must do that's significantly more important. We can pray. We can pray. The spiritual truth that no one is able to come to Jesus unless the Father draws them means that prayer is the most important way we can participate in this process. Now, we always want to do something. We think we're not doing something. We need to do something. Our tendency is to think less of prayer as if prayer is not doing something or as if it's a last resort. We have too high an opinion of ourselves as if God can't do it without us. So again, yes, He chooses to use us. Yes, we're to be available. But He doesn't need us. He has everything and everyone else at His disposal plus the power to use it effectively. God never blows His witness opportunities. Do you think about that? We do, but He doesn't. He will accomplish His purposes in each individual life. Do we really think we're so indispensable to God's plan of salvation for the ones we love? Now again, let me be clear here, because God, without a doubt, 
chooses to use us. So we cannot use the reality that it takes God's drawing us for any of us to come to Christ as an excuse for an action. But God's drawing is the key. And if it is the key, if it is the essential element to seeing someone come to Christ, and we are unable and we are powerless to come to Christ without that, then what should we major on? Prayer. Prayer. Prayer is coming before God as needy servants. Prayer is the tangible expression of our absolute and total dependence and reliance on God. The very act of praying recognizes that God is able to do something we can't do. So what do we do? We ask. We can't do it, so what do we do? We ask the one who can. And we ask again. We knock, as Scripture says, and we keep on knocking. We sometimes lament. I've heard many of us lament that we don't see large numbers coming to Christ, the same numbers that the early church saw. But there's a hallmark of the early church that most often we can't, if we're really honest with ourselves, say, describes us as present-day believers. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to all of the means of ordinary grace that He's given us, that God has given us to transmit His grace to us. But we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were devoted to the means of grace that God has given us, teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, prayer. Paul wrote to the Romans in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. So prayer was the lifeblood. It was the lifeblood of the early church. And the early church, despite living in a depraved, and in many ways an evil culture, despite opposition, despite being misunderstood at best and hated at worst, it thrived and it grew and it saw many come to Christ. They saw scoundrels come to Christ. So if no one is able or capable of coming to Christ, unless the Father draws them, we must regularly, faithfully, devotedly go to the Father. And we must ask Him to do what cannot happen without His work. God actually, if we think about it, God has been very faithful to hear and answer our prayers as a church the last three years as we've intentionally come to Him asking the Lord of the harvest to send laborers to join us. And I'm grateful for that here in our little corner of God's harvest here at TCF. We've called this the Help Wanted Prayer Challenge. And from that has grown many prayer initiatives, including our monthly prayer advances. But wouldn't it be wonderful that if as we continued to pray, and we do need to continue to pray, folks, but as we continue to pray and we become as a body ever more devoted to prayer, wouldn't it be wonderful to see those new laborers come more often from the harvest itself? Wouldn't that be really cool, folks? To see people come to Christ because God draws them an answer to our prayers. More so, this is where it hits even closer to home because we do care about the lost in our circles of influence. But how about those friends, neighbors, family members, or other loved ones? Those scoundrels we've longed to see in His kingdom come to the Savior who loves them and pursues them 
into relationship with him. Is it likely that any of us would be saved? No. This is the point. It's all of grace. And it's always of grace. But at the same time, let's not overcomplicate this. God does save people. And He uses His prescribed means, which are His ordinary means. God is not so much calling us to be creative as much as faithful. Part of this faithfulness is believing that God can do great things far above what we can even imagine. And another part is remembering that He does great things through His prescribed means in the lives of His church. As a result, we pray big and live faithfully. So church, let's resolve together to pray big and to live faithfully. Amen? So that in eternity, we will have the joy of many other scoundrels just like us joining us in His eternal kingdom. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Your tremendous love, Your amazing grace that saved a scoundrel like me. And Father God, we're grateful that You choose to use us in this process, but it's really up to You, Lord. It's Your work. Salvation is Your work, Father God. So Lord, we do come to You humbly, realizing that we can't do this because it's Your work. The most important thing we can do is ask. So we do ask You, Father God. We, Each of us, even now, as we think of those loved ones, as we think of those neighbors, as we think of those family members, as we think of those co-workers or friends from school that we have tried and tried to witness to, we've tried to talk to, we've tried to love, and have done our best, Lord. We pray, Father God, that You would draw them. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would do the deep work that You desire to do. And Father God, that we would have the joy and the privilege of seeing many come into the kingdom of light, be released and delivered from the kingdom of darkness, Father God. We thank You for these things, Lord. Do this deep work in us, Father God. Do this deep work in us that we would be devoted to prayer, that we would pray big, that we would live faithfully and follow in Your footsteps. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.